listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Let me say, hey, good morning again. We are so glad you are here. And you know what? We believe this. If you're Visiting with us this morning, if you're a guest with us, we are so grateful you are here, but it is by no accident that we believe that before the foundations of the world, God knew who would be here on this Sunday of October the 15th of 2017 for us to look at this passage in Luke. So if you are just joining us, we are in a series called Jesus Stories. Jesus Stories is what we have titled a series through several of the parables. And a parable is this, a parable is a simple word picture, things that people would associate with and know about everyday life, but they have profound spiritual lessons right there built into them. And so today we're going to look at one, probably either one or two of the most commonly known parables, the parable that you might know as the Good Samaritan. Because if you're old school like me, man, you remember that state-of-the-art flannel graph And that teacher put that board up, and on went those people, and they told you the story about the Good Samaritan. Or if you're a little newer than me, you've probably seen the Veggie Tales. All about, you know, this person that acts in a very unconventional way. So if you have your Bibles or on your devices, let's go to Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in beginning of verse 25. But you know, every single day, we face some opportunities. You're going to come face to face, and you probably even have this morning, of opportunities where you can make things worse, or you can actually make things better. And I want you to know, I hope we never have a church that you have to pretend that things are okay. And I'll be honest with you, I have failed at this so many ways this past week. If my wife wasn't homesick, you could ask her. You can ask my children. They know to leave the service 10 minutes early so nobody can actually ask them. But I'm telling you, if I could made it worse this week, I did. No matter what it was, I made the situation worse. Because you've been in these situations. Your spouse says something. And you take it personally and it hurts your feelings. And in that time, you can make it worse or you can make it better. And I'm 0 for 1 in that field. Made it totally worse Blew it out of proportion, escalated. You know, you've done that too. My kids, things happened this week. They did some things. I was faced with a decision. Am I going to respond out of anger and make it worse? Yep, I did that. Or you can make it better. You know, you may go out to eat for lunch this afternoon. You're going to be sitting in a restaurant. Odds are something's not going to go well. And in that time, you can choose to make things better, give them the benefit of the doubt, try to talk calmly, or you can make it worse by letting everybody know how wronged you have been. At this week, you're going to go through your week. You're going to be faced with many decisions. And in those moments, you're going to be faced with a decision, am I going to make it worse or am I going to make it better? And we are faced with countless opportunities for this. So here's how I want to phrase it this morning, a takeaway for you. We can either be agents of mercy or causes of harm. You can either be an agent of mercy, and you're going to have some opportunities this week that you could choose that. I'm going to be an agent 
of mercy. I'm going to make things better. Or you can make things worse. And we call those causes of harm. So we're going to see today in Luke chapter 10, beginning of verse 25. He says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put up to him a test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So here you have this, it calls him a lawyer. A little bit different than today. He would be an expert in a certain field. And what this man did, he dedicated his life to studying the law of Moses. He would have been an expert in knowing and understanding and even helping you apply the law of Moses. So I think the closest thing we would have today would be like some seminary professor that was really a specialized person in maybe, you know, Greek New Testament or something like that. Very specialized. So this man is an expert in the law of Moses. And he asked this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But if you've read through some of the New Testament, you know this isn't, it should kind of resonate with you. Wait, I think I've heard that before because you have. Luke chapter 18, remember the rich young ruler? This is what he's asking Jesus. John chapter 3, you remember Nicodemus goes to him and you know, doesn't want to be seen, goes to Jesus and asks him, hey, what should I do, what can I do to have this eternal life? So he's asking this, what are God's requirements for me? But remember, he's an expert in the law. What, what are the requirements for me to be able to enjoy this life but even the life to come? He's asking, how can I be sure that I get to be a part of the resurrection? Remember, he is an expert in the law of Moses because he believes, hey, I know the answer to this. Because in this lawyer, he knows this because it's not a sincere question. Luke tells you it's a test. It's a trap. He's trying to find out proof or he's trying to discover proof that Jesus doesn't support the Mosaic law as he understands it. He's trying to trap him. So Jesus does what any great teacher would do. So you know, you've been asked these questions. You've been asked a question and something in you says, wait, this seems kind of wrong. Something's not quite right. Maybe they're trying just to see how I will respond to this. And it's a test. So Jesus does what any great teacher would do. You know what he does? He answers him with two more questions. So you ever caught in that situation? You don't know how to answer? Feel like you're treading on ice? Then respond with a question. That's what Jesus does in verse 26. So Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? It's a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? So the lawyer is now going to answer. And notice that he is right intellectually. Verse 27, he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So what this lawyer is actually doing, you could turn to Deuteronomy 6, he is quoting the Shema. So a dedicated Jew twice a day would recite, every morning and every evening they would recite the Shema. So he knows the scriptures. Intellectually, he has all the right answers because notice Jesus's affirmation of it. Look at verse 28. And he, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. He says, good for you. 
You know the right answer. Now, do this and you will live. You will be a part of the resurrection. So go and do these things. And he says, you will have life. And that's very similar to what Jesus tells the rich young ruler. Remember, he goes asking, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus tells him, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. But if we're not careful, it can sound a lot like Jesus is saying that you have to earn or there's something that you must do to earn your way to eternal life. If you just sell all that you have, I mean, don't we wish that it'd be just that? Just sell everything, give it away. Or if you love God and love your neighbors, then guess what? You get to enjoy heaven. But here's what Jesus, here's the meaning behind those words. Jesus is saying, go and do this. If you can go and live a life of perfect love, perfect love towards God, no other idols, love Him more than anyone else, no other gods, and if you'll love others even more than you love yourself, then you get to experience the resurrection and you get to experience heaven. So Jesus is saying He wants to help them see something at the core of who they really are. The issue is that, listen, no one can actually do that. You can't love God perfectly. You can't love your neighbor perfectly. Our hearts are so controlled by sin. And that's why the rich young ruler, you know what? He goes away sad because he thinks about all that he's about to give up. And that's why the lawyer responds in the way he does in the next verse. Look at 29. But he, desiring to be justified, to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who? Who's my neighbor? So the lawyer, he's trying to vindicate, he, he's, he's trying to validate who he is. He believes that he's good with the Lord. He knew the law of Moses. He follows the law of Moses, probably provided for his family. I'm sure he offered sacrifices at the temple. He even probably took care of his fellow man. He stood for God. He stands for God's law. And he stands for God's people. But Jesus is trying to help him realize something. That the law was given. That the law was there to show a way of life. A way to conduct yourself. A way how to respond to people. But the law was not a way to life. It's kind of a roadmap of, of giving us some examples and things that we should do and not do. But he knows that it would never be able to lead them to life. But there's so much more to this lawyer's question. He says, okay, and who is my neighbor? Now, he's not saying, listen, great. Well, show me who my neighbor is and listen, I'll go love them Better than you've ever seen. Just help me know who my neighbor is. And man, I am going to go and love them well. Because I want us to notice two things kind of behind this question. First of all, the lawyer was asking, really, what's the standard? The, the lawyer believed that he had really fulfilled all of his obligation of the law. He believed that he was right. And he wanted to show, he wants Jesus to say, listen, look. I know there's a lot of bad stuff in the world, but I'm not part of it. I am actually righteous. You put me up against anyone, 
And listen, I'm actually going to be okay. I'm going to fare all right with them. But second, the lawyer, he wants Jesus to uphold what neighbor meant to him. He has this mindset of, of who his neighbor is, and he wants Jesus to validate that he's right in his belief. Because you see, a, the man would have had this mindset. He would have lived in kind of a circular world. At the center was him. This is the world, and I'm here. In my circle of care, it would have been my immediate relatives, those that live in my home. Those that I am called according to the law to love and to provide for. The next circle would have been his closest friends. You know, I'm going to care for them. I'm going to watch out for them. They're going to help me in times of need. So my family, then my friends. And then there would be this circle of of anyone of Jewish descent. You know, anyone that had even converted to Judaism. Guess what? They get to come into this circle and... Uh, they get to experience my care. I will, according to the law, I will provide for them. So my family, my friends, and then anyone that is a part of this Jewish faith. And the lines were carefully drawn. They were to ensure the well-being of who was inside this Jewish belief. You were looking out for you and theirs, and in these circles, it was meant to uphold and to take care of the people that believed and lived just like you. But those circles were also there for your protection, to deny help, to keep at bay anyone who did not believe or live like you did. Because anyone that doesn't believe as you did was to be looked at as an enemy. They were a threat to everything about who you were, your belief system, your lifestyle. And these circles were set up to protect you against outsiders. But wow, isn't it interesting how easy it is for us to get into that same trap? And I would say, yes, you are to care for your family. It's a sin not to. God has called you to lead them and provide for them, and you're to do that. And you're to care for those that... Uh, that, that are your friends that, that God puts you in paths with. Those of your church. And listen, next week, in fact, you've already gotten uh, an email, probably if you're in a life group, life groups you're going to talk about tonight. There's a, a big need coming up in this church that we want to be a part of. We believe it's a blessing to get to do that. But isn't it much harder to view people as your neighbor who live different lifestyles than you do, that believe differently? then you might believe. So another way, this question, what this lawyer is asking is this. What does a person need to do or what qualifications do they need to have in order to be my neighbor? What do they need to believe? How do they need to behave to qualify to be one that gets to be within my circle of care? And if I agree about that, then listen, I'll do all that I can to help them. But what do they need to do? How do they need to believe? How do they need to live in order for them to be included in my circle of care? Man, so Jesus has now drawn this man in, and Jesus wants to shatter this man's viewpoint. Because Jesus says, you know what? That reminds me of a story. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and left or departed, leaving him half dead. So you have Jerusalem and you have Jericho. About 17 miles separates these two cities. Jericho, or Jerusalem sits about 3,000 feet above it. So that's why it says, you know, travel down. But this was a very barren road. There were lots of rocks and cliffs. Great opportunities for people to hide, to ambush people traveling from city to city. In fact, in some writings, this road was known and referred to as the way of the blood. Because there was so much violence. There were so many attacks on this road. So we have this unnamed man. We're not told who he is. I believe he's Jewish. And he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. These robbers come, they attack him, they beat him, and they left him half dead or barely alive. The story goes on in verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So a priest, a descendant of Aaron, someone, a a high religious man. He would have been one that had performed the sacrifices in the temple, maintained the temple. Perhaps traveling back from Jerusalem to Jericho, because that would have been a common area for many priests to live, kind of their countryside villas. Coming back maybe after serving the Lord, helping his fellow man in the sacrifices. And he sees this man, but instead of offering help, it says he moves to the other side of the road, and he leaves him here. Now listen, there's a lot of speculation as to why this happened. Some people say, oh, it's because he was a priest. And a priest was not to touch a dead body. It would defile him. So the man looks half dead. Instead of taking a stick and kind of seeing if he's okay, You know, he wants to be real careful not to defile himself, so he moves to the other side of the road. Or some have said, perhaps he was afraid of being robbed. Well, we're not told the reason, because there's a greater lesson coming. So he leaves him. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, someone of the descendant of Levi, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, first of all, you have this high religious man, this priest, Well, his assistant would have been a Levi, also a very devout Jew, would have helped in the sacrifices, helped to maintain the temple. He's traveling back, sees the man, and he does the same thing. He moves to the other side of the road, and he just leaves him there. So this man in need, the the high devout Jew walks by, An assistant who's also a devout Jew leaves him. So this lawyer probably has to be thinking, okay, I see where this is going. Yeah, that high religious man, I know who they are. Okay, his assistant, well, the next guy's going to be a guy just like me. You know, knows the law, loves the Lord, tries to do right by his family. It'll It'll be an ordinary Joe just like me. But Jesus brings in someone the Jewish lawyer would never have suspected. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan. Okay, so to say a Jew and a Samaritan did not get along would be a massive 
understatement. There was a mutual hatred between the two. And it wasn't like the Jew was just had this bad view of the Samaritan, but the Samaritan didn't have this bad view of the Jew. No, they both mutually hated each other. And here's why. Remember King Solomon. Solomon's reigning over all of Israel. But at his death, Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12, under his leadership, the kingdom becomes divided. You have the ten northern tribes that make up Israel. And you have the southern tribe of Judah. Where the northern capital eventually becomes, guess what? Samaria. But in 722 B.C., Samaria is conquered by the Assyrians. And many Jews are then dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. But also some non-Jews are brought into that area, into Samaria. And so Jews begin marrying non-Jews. And when this began happening, well, the southern kingdom of Judah... They can't believe this, and they take this as a slap in the face, because guess what? Man, they had also been in captivity in Babylon, but you know what they did? They withstood. They were strong. They remained fully Jew. So in a Jew's, a Judah's eyes, those now Samaritans that weren't strong enough, didn't love the Lord enough, didn't have a strong enough willpower, couldn't control themselves, see them As utterly evil. So the Samaritans, to make things worse, not better, you know what they do? They build a rival temple in Mount Gerizim. They build this temple almost to say, look what we can do. So the southern Jews, they just can't believe this. You know what they do? Instead of making things worse, they make it better and they go and destroy that temple. So there is no loss of love between these two groups at all. So we see these two groups that utterly despise and hate each other. But notice how this hatred for a different group of people, how hard it actually is once it takes root to get rid of it. John chapter 8, Jesus, he's got these opponents who want to kill him. This is what he says. He says, are we right in saying that you are, are a Samaritan and have a demon. So a worst pos- the worst possible group that you could belong to in the eyes of a Jew was a Samaritan. Then you go to Luke 9. Jesus, a Jew, he's not accepted in this Samaritan village. You know what James and John, when they heard this, you know what they say? They go to Jesus and say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? They're like, hey, the world would actually be better off. Why don't we just do that? So there is absolutely no loss of love between a Jew and a Samaritan. They were each other. In fact, they're so far outside each other's circles, they can't even see them. But then the real shocker happens as to what the Samaritan does. Look at the the beginning of verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeepers, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So a Samaritan, the, the scum of the earth in the eyes of a Jewish lawyer, sees the man and he has compassion. Now this Jewish lawyer, he had to be thinking, no way. There's no way that a Samaritan, man, I know them and they are evil. They don't love the Lord. They especially don't love the law. There's no way a Samaritan would lift a finger to help someone, especially a Jew. But notice the examples. He went to him. He didn't cross over on the other side. He went to the man. He bound up his wounds with oil that was soothing, wine as a disinfectant, set him on his own animal, meaning that man probably walked, led him to safety, brought him to an end, didn't just send someone else to help him. He helped the man. Two denarii, two days' wages paid for the hurt man out of his own pocket. He didn't go and ask others. He sacrificed to help this man. And then he says, then I will repay you. He wanted to make sure this man got everything that he needed. So Jesus looks the lawyer in the eye, and he says this in verse 36. Which of these three, meaning don't forget the first two, do you think provided to be a neighbor, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answers. And he said, the one who showed mercy. I believe the lawyer choked out those words that he could not even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. So I believe with all the compassion, Jesus looks at him and says, and you go and do likewise. He tells this devout Jewish lawyer to go and to be like the Samaritan. And that's where the story ends. I mean, we're left not knowing what happens. But what we see are so many Things, so many points of application. So I want to give you three quick ones that I see in this story. One, this man, his circle of care, it was all wrong. Jesus is saying, your circle of care, you've got it all messed up. It's not just your family. It's not just your friends. And it's not those that believe and act just like you. In fact, he says, your neighbor is anyone, whether they believe like you or act like you or not, is anyone who is in need. So this is what I hope we see. That people do not become your neighbor by their location or their race or their belief or even their lifestyle. You make people your neighbor by your compassion and your love. Meaning people don't become your neighbor by what they do. You make them your neighbor by your compassion and your love. It isn't up to them to earn that from you. We make them our neighbor by our compassion and love. And then don't you see the lawyer? Man, can't you just see him missing God? 
I mean, this was a Jewish man. He had all the right answers. He's a devout Jew who dedicated himself to knowing the law. He sacrificed to go to school to be able to defend it. He memorized and recited the Shema twice a day, every morning and every night. But he's missing God in the middle. This lawyer needs to see that the law was a way of life, but not the way to life. I think what he's trying to show him is that faith that does not produce a love for your neighbor is dead. And he would say that's not faith at all. But it's this last one. I think we see that loving God is often easier than loving our neighbor. The, the lawyer, he, he knew the commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. Catch this. There has never been a just reason for anyone not to love God. In fact, everything that has ever happened in your life and even in my life has always been for our good. And we say it this way. God cannot do but good to you. It won't always feel like it. We will not always understand. But God has never given you a reason not to love Him. But people are different. You know me personally enough. I've probably given you a reason not to love me. I know I've given my family plenty. But this lawyer, he was never wronged or hurt by God, but possibly had been wronged and hurt by a Samaritan. But when a heart is fully transformed by God, that's when you find the ability to love others, even when it is risky and difficult. And you know, I would hope the next time that this lawyer came across a Samaritan, that that interaction was different, but we're just not told that. So I want to remind us of this last thing this morning. As that man laid on the side of that road, stripped and beaten, he watched two of his fellow Jews walk right by him. He looks at them and he sees them. His hope is there and then it vanishes. But then he sees a Samaritan coming to him. Two people Different beliefs, different lifestyles, total hatred for each other. He had to be thinking, oh man, this is it. He's coming to finish me off. Or he's possibly just coming to kick me a few more times. Because you know what, I know how those Samaritans are. But oh, how that man must have been shocked when that Samaritan began to kneel down and to bandage his wounds. So instead of being that battered Jew's worst nightmare, he was actually his saving grace. So see, here we are, right back at the beginning, that you and I are faced with many decisions each and every day where we can make things worse and we can be a nightmare or we can make things better. We can choose to be agents of mercy or causes of harm. But this will never happen until we are able to see that you and I are actually the ones that are laying helpless on the side of the road. In fact, the way the Good Samaritan cared for the traveler is the way God cares for us. In fact, God's love is even much greater. The Samaritan gave up time. He gave up money. He cared for that wounded enemy. 
that God gives his eternal son to die for sinners who deserve nothing but eternal damnation. So think about being trapped in your car. Maybe wrapped around a tree on the side of the road, left for dead. Passed over by so many that you thought were your friends. Knowing that you are beyond hope. And a person that you think hates you and you hate them begins to make their way to you and to your surprise are actually there to help. But now think about being trapped in your sin. Headed to a life of total misery. Those you thought had your best interest in mind have abandoned you. And you look up and you see your worst enemy coming at you. The one that you hate more than any other person that's ever been. Every bad thing that's happened in your life is their thought. You wish that they would just leave you alone. And you lay there trapped beyond hope. But you hear these words. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that, that's our motivation for going and making more neighbors, to love people more. It's because we realize that God has actually loved us. And that's where our motivation to be agents of mercy has to come from. You know, there are probably countless, countless opportunities over the next few days. Man, I know some of you are going through some very difficult times. I know there are some things in our lives that don't make sense. And it seems like the world is out to get you. And doesn't that just put us on edge for anyone that might come across our path? But here's the choice that we all face. Are we going to be agents of mercy or causes of harm? So the challenge is this week is to go and to make more neighbors by offering cups of mercy. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.